Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Emerita Professor of Economics, Nancy Fulbright. Together we talk about feminist economics, gender inequality in the home and in the workplace, and also about the care economy and how we should measure this in economics. We take a deep dive into two of Nancy's books, where she explains the difference between the invisible heart and the invisible hand. To access the show notes and the links mentioned in this episode, visit economicrockstar.com or type Nancy into the search bar of the Economic Rockstar homepage. Are you an educator? Are you passionate about education and knowledge? Have you considered taking ownership and control over your content? If you're interested in creating a website, a podcast or even educational videos, like a flipped classroom, visit economicrockstar.com forward slash community. Register your interest and I'll be in touch. I guess I think there's a certain amount of rational self-interest that goes on in families and households. But I also think there's a lot of emotion and concern and care for others that's mixed up with it. And I would say the same thing of the market, actually. Leading happy and worthwhile lives is kind of the point of the whole economic enterprise. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And there's certainly a lot of evidence that what makes people happy is good human relationships, having close ties with family and friends and community. And I think if we appreciated that a little bit more fully, we could organize our economic system a lot more successfully. I think feminist economics is a part of the whole heterodox challenge to mainstream economics. Uh, And I feel good about that. Hi, Frank Comber here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have Professor Nancy Fulbright join me today. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nancy Fulbright is a recently retired professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and currently directs a research program of gender and care work at the Political Economy Research Institute there. Professor Fulbright's research focuses on the interface between feminist theory and political economy, with a particular focus on the work of caring for others. Nancy was elected president of the International Association for Feminist Economists in 2002, has been an associate editor of the journal Feminist Economist since 1995, and is also an editorial assistant of the Journal of Women, Politics and Policy. Nancy is recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, and she has consulted for the United Nations Human Development Office, the World Bank and other organisations. Nancy has also written extensively on the social organization of time, namely the time allotted to care for children and the elderly, and how family policies and social institutions limit the choices people can make between paid and unpaid work. She is a contributor to the New York Times Economics blog and also writes for her blog, Care Talk. She is author of numerous books, including Valuing Children, Rethinking the Economics of the Family, and Greed, Lust and Gender, A History of Economic Ideas. Nancy Fulbright received a BA in philosophy from the University of Texas, Austin, and a PhD in economics from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Nancy, I would love to know initially how you actually got into economics and what was your calling card in terms of going into feminist economics, if you want to call it that. Oh, Frank, I wish I had a really good story to tell about how I got interested in this area. All I know is I grew up in a family uh, that was characterized by kind of extremes of wealth and poverty. And so I became very interested in kind of what determines economic outcomes and how we can think about that. And I 
started out in philosophy, but I just realized that economics was what most interested me. And I always tried to sort of connect it to my own experience, which kind of led me to thinking about women, gender, and my own position in the economic world. So that's how it started. And was there any time in history that triggered a an interest in this? Because I um, spoke to Professor Shosanna Grossbard in a recent episode, and she had worked with Gary Becker, who discussed about the economics of a household. Well, I mean, that, that was also uh, an, a new area of research when I was uh, a graduate student. And I always found... Becker's work interesting in that it, he really pays attention to what goes on outside of the market economy and families and households. But I never liked it that I never liked Becker's approach, which, which is to treat decisions in the family as though they're just essentially the same or they take the same form. Uh, they, they're characterized by sort of you can model them in the same terms as you can model market choice. So I've always come at it from a more, I don't know, less conventional, more subversive direction than uh, Becker and Grossbard. I'm sure Becker has pioneered the ideas of a market being made up of rational decisions, whereas, correct me if I'm wrong, you might have looked at it in terms of uh, behaviours where there's reciprocity involved. In- well, well, I mean, the interesting thing about Becker, I think, is that he he created a kind of dichotomy he basically postulated that people were in the in the market behaved in a perfectly self-interested way and that in the family they behaved in a perfectly altruistic way so it's not so much about rationality whether people are rational or or, or not as it is about the extent to which people care about other people or not you, uh it's kind of the question of interdependent utilities or or concern for others I guess I think there's a certain amount of rational self-interest that goes on in families and households. But I also think there's a lot of emotion and concern and care for others that's mixed up with it. And I would say the same thing of the market, actually, that I don't think people behave in completely selfish ways in the market. I think they have concerns uh, for other people that kind of complicate the story of marketplace decision-making. What would you call this area of economics? Would you call it feminist economics, or is there a title that, such as household economics that you might apply to it? Well, who knows what what the best way to choose a title is. I guess I would say my methodology is feminist and that I'm I'm really interested in how there might be some divergence of interest between men and women. And I, I do think there is some kind of collective bargaining between men and women over who should do what and who should get paid what. Um, but but the location of the work that I'm looking at is largely the household. So I think in, you know maybe both of those words are relevant, thinking about feminist household economics. And would there be any underlying foundation or principles other than the collective bargaining that we would well, build? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there is also individual choice and individual bargaining in households. Uh, I think people try to negotiate what what they're going to share and what they're not going to share. But I think that's complicated by some kind of implicit and explicit collective bargaining. What is it that men should do? What is it that women should do? What are the responsibilities of parents toward their children and stuff like that? I guess another principle that's really important is that 
work can be very productive and create value for society even if it's unpaid. So in my view, a lot of the unpaid work of caring for other people really increases kind of economic output, and we should really see it as part of the economy. And that's actually remarkably uh, hard to persuade economists to do. And is this because there's no particular productivity output in terms of any physical or tangible outputs, or is it just... Well, we we look at, you know, the market economy includes a lot of services that don't mm-hmm. have tangible outputs. I think it's it's more kind of a legacy of a, an, a kind of an accounting system and the evolution of an economic theory that focused on markets. I mean, in some ways, what I argue with respect to non-market work is very similar to what environmentalists argue about depletion of natural resources or destabilization of the global climate. There are these effects that are not, they don't come with a price tag on them. I mean, you know, because they're not being bought and sold in the market, but they have economic consequences and you can try to estimate those economic consequences in a variety of ways that are sometimes challenging, but not impossible. I'm just curious to find out whether there are some historical reasons as to why maybe women are put into a role where they have to it's expected that they care for the young or the elderly and and this then has well been yeah that, that, yeah that's a really great question i i think that i guess in my view almost all social systems kind of evolve as a for reasons that have to do both with uh, efficiency and with inequality and you can ex- look at it or try to explain the emergence of patriarchal systems as systems that were able to outcompete or out uh, outfight systems that were less patriarchal and therefore became kind of a predominant mode of, of social organization so you know patriarchal systems are based on a pretty strict division of labor where women have very little choice but to provide care for dependents. And men have very little choice uh, but to basically fight wars and play a more prominent role in offense and defense. And perhaps that's a system that also had some advantages in terms of delivering rapid population growth, which was an advantage at some points in human history. But clearly that system has become less effective, less desirable, less less successful, and it's been replaced to some extent by capitalist principles of organization that have changed it in in some ways very profoundly, in other ways kind of hybridized with it or, or combined with it. Unfortunately, there's this whole expectation currently that women possibly are ones that must actually take the responsibility of care. And I don't know whether that's the well, default of government is a society. Well, I think it's the legacy of a. I mean, I think it's complicated. I think it's the the legacy of a history of patriarchal systems, and I also think it has. It's reinforced in many ways by the state and also by the market, but I also think it's changing. I mean, I think that's what makes this uh, line of inquiry so interesting. Is that we we see we do see a lot of. Uh, pretty systematic transformation of gender roles with capitalist development. And women clearly do have many more choices today than they've had in the past in terms of what they will do and, and how they will do it. 
But ironically, I think those sort of positive effects of giving women more individual rights are countervailed by some kind of downsides of the emergence of capitalist systems. And one of those is that in in some ways we're evolving towards a system where nobody really is given assigned the responsibility of taking care of dependents and it's treated kind of as a it's just a free choice if you choose to do it you know if you want to do it great if you don't you don't so i guess in my work i argue that we we've gone from a system where it was women's responsibility to take care of dependents to one in which it's just a matter of who feels like it and there's a little bit you know we in some ways we've veered to the opposite extreme of just treating society as though it was just about what makes us the you know the decisions that make us feel good in the moment. Scandinavian countries are at the forefront of encouraging a paternal yeah relationship. Yeah, is that something that all other countries, especially yeah. developed countries, should look up to? Yeah, and I think it is. I think it's happening. I see a lot of cultural shift in that direction. So, the policies that the Nordic countries have used are basically providing incentives for fathers to take more time out of paid work to take care of kids. But you also see more informal negotiations. I think, you know, in the U.S., women have a lot of individual bargaining power in their relationships to persuade their partners to take on more roles. And I think there's sort of a cultural shift. The norms are are changing in ways, I mean, slowly, but, but discernibly. I think definitions of femininity and masculinity are, are changing in a in a positive way. Should we not be kind of categorizing these as a feminist and a masculine society? Should we be more looking forward toward where we actually talk about a society where there's equals and we wouldn't have to differentiate between these two or is it necessary to continue with this differentiation so we wouldn't have to fall back into the huge divides that would have existed in the past? Yeah, that's a good question. I I'm not really sure. I guess I'd like to think that we could have distinctions between. I don't. I don't think the the construct of femininity and masculinity is necessarily a bad construct. And uh, because it still I, exists, I'm sure, in um, less developed. No, no, it's, and... it's very strong. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. no, it's very strong. But I think I guess what concerns me more is when femininity is defined in ways that are economically disempowering. Mm. I guess I'd like to think that we could redefine femininity, and masculinity. In ways that were not so disadvantageous, uh, and I think that's what we're doing is kind of re- reconfiguring them uh, in ways so that they maybe have still have some descriptive content, but they don't determine what an individual can be or do. Is there a market size for this care sector or care economy in the United States? I'm sorry. Is there any market? Sorry, is there what, a I, market size in term in dollar terms? For the care economy in the United States? Well, it depends on how you define those terms, I guess. I do think that a big part of the, uh, you know, what we think of as the money economy is involved in care provision. So if you look at the percentage of the paid labor force employed in education, health, and uh, social services, that's grown a lot over time. But there's also an unmeasured care sector, which is the unpaid work that people perform uh, on behalf of others, especially children or the elderly or the sick or disabled. And um, yes, we we do have instruments for measuring that. And 
approximating its market value and and that's an area that I where I do a lot of empirical research. I'm sure the um, the proxy would be the opportunity cost of working elsewhere if you weren't caring for the sick elderly or children. Well, sometimes opportunity cost is relevant because you you're you want to know what people are willing to give up in order to do it. That's an indication of uh, how they feel about it. But from a national accounting perspective, usually a replacement cost estimate is considered better. That is, if you stopped, if you suddenly stopped providing the care in the family that you're providing now, what would it cost to purchase a substitute for your services? So that's an estimate that should be adjusted for skill to some extent. Of course, there's never a perfect replacement for, for what family members provide for one another. But again, that's something that you can approximate. Um, you mentioned that care is a unique form of work because it's intrinsically motivated and that not just money motivates people to care. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's actually true of most forms of work. That There's a lot of research suggesting that people derive a lot of satisfaction from work and that being you know being employed is an important part of their identity and their enjoyment of daily life uh, but i think it's especially true in care work that in particular we depend on the intrinsic motivation of care workers to ensure the quality of care so we you know we want to hire teachers who like kids and who care about kids and we want to train medical personnel who value uh, human well-being and, and human life because the market, those are all areas where market transactions don't really guarantee, necessarily guarantee high quality. Children or people who are sick or, or disabled can't just, you know, it's not like they're buying services in a market and if they don't like what they get, they can go elsewhere. They're kind of at the mercy of their caregivers and so intrinsic motivation is very important. And so we need to really value that intrinsic motivation and recognize it. But we can't penalize it by paying people less just because they are willing to work for reasons other than money. If we do penalize it, I think we discourage people from maintaining and restoring and acting on those preferences. You know, we sort of tell, if we do that, we send the message that nice guys finish last. So I think we we really need to think pretty carefully about how we want to reward care work. Is this a dilemma then in terms of looking for suitable candidates for work? Because if it's expected that people who go into the care industry almost do it for the love of caring and they then are viewed as following a vocation, then because of that vocation, money doesn't necessarily matter as long as they get by within their means. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it can be. It can have that effect. But, you know, in a lot of pretty well-paid jobs occupied by men, we don't seem to have that problem. We Physicians are in the U.S. are pretty highly paid, despite the fact that we expect them to be intrinsically motivated. So I think that that logic has been applied in a kind of gendered way to women. I mean, you, sure, you could argue that in the short run, people who are willing to do work for free might be especially well-motivated. But the problem is they can't continue doing that work. There's a limit to how long they'll continue doing that work if they're not rewarded on the basis of their contribution. And also people are going to, if people feel like they're going to be, you know, that, that being a caregiver is just being a sucker, 
and to be taken advantage of, then, then they'll be, you know, eventually less willing to, to do it. So this, I think there's a kind of important distinction between short run and, and long run there. In the long run, you need to pay care workers a fair wage in order to ensure that those, that their intrinsic motivation can be replenished, can be, re, you know, rewarded and replenished. I know in Ireland anyway, the majority of nursing staff would be females and likewise at school level for those under 12s, most teachers would be female also. Um, would there be some degree of undervaluation for this type of staff? And have you tested for that in America or internationally? Yeah, actually, there's some very interesting studies showing that occupations that involve care for others are paid less, all else equal. So there's kind of a, a care penalty, but it, it varies across countries, and it, it's particularly extreme in countries like the U.S. with a lot of earnings inequality, and it, it you know it's affected to some extent by the kind of overall inequality uh, of earnings. But yeah, there is pretty significant empirical evidence that care work is is penalized. I know in also the recession in Ireland anyway that. A lot of men lost their jobs, so they took the position of being at home. How could that psychologically affect a man when they may feel the pressures of society that they should be out working and not being in a caring position? Yeah, it can be pretty. It can be pretty stressful. And Frederick Ingalls actually wrote about this in the 19th century when he wrote about the condition of the working classes in England. But I think the, you know, that's an aspect of what we were talking about earlier that gender roles are in the process of being rene- renegotiated and they're evolving. And I think they, they have to evolve for men as well as for women. Men need to see, learn to take pride in participating in family work and being a part of the family economy. And I think they, I think increasingly they do, even if they feel the weight of some social disapproval or lack of respect or something that they there's actually in the US for instance a pretty strong movement of de- stay-at-home dads mm-hmm. who try to get together and insist on better recognition and valuation of of what they do it's the same here in Ireland too it's just that some people speaking on uh, media so like radio would express these personal concerns which is not necessarily and something that does exist, but they feel the responsibility on, on themselves that they should actually be the provider and not the the, the taker or the carer or such. Um, you've written a couple, a number of fantastic books, Nancy. And one of them I'd like to touch on, The Invisible Heart. How is this different to Adam Smith's The Invisible Hand? And what do you mean by The Invisible Heart? Well, Smith believed that if everybody pursued their own individual self-interest, that the invisible hand of the market would ensure that outcomes would be efficient and, and equitable. He, he Smith had a lot of confidence in the pursuit of individual self-interest. Actually, Smith also really believed that people had pretty strong moral sentiments and that people were not likely to engage in really selfish, excessively selfish behavior. That's one of the reasons he believed in kind of the invisible hand. But many people have taken Smith's praise of the free market as a kind of endorsement of selfish behavior, that it doesn't matter if you think only of yourself, because in a market economy, we can be confident that 
everything will turn out just fine. And what I argue in The Invisible Heart is that's really incorrect, that the market economy really depends to a very great extent on a sense of commitment and obligation to other people, of trust and reciprocity and, and concern for the welfare of others. And that affects overall economic organization and success in some pretty profound ways. You conclude in this that we all have a responsibility to care for others and to provide for the vision for the future in which care and care work are given greater priority and support. Yeah, but I think that, yes, but, you know, it's odd. I think a lot of people agree with that mm-hmm. principle when it's stated very broadly, but they tend to think that that principle doesn't apply in economic transactions. You know, that you should, as a voter, you should care about other people, but as a consumer, you should only care about yourself. And I think the economics discipline has encouraged that view, you know, that moral values are something that should come into play in the public arena, but not in the market. And I guess that's the assumption that I'm really quarreling with. Could it be that a country like a Muslim country where women may not have the rights as those in Western countries, could it be that these governments or these type of markets would be considered something like government intervention, whereby markets are not efficient in terms of the care industry or the care market? Uh, yeah, I I guess I don't really know. I, I, I'm always reluctant to generalize about what's happening in Muslim countries. I think there's a lot of variation among them, and I think we – I don't think we know enough about exactly how they're evolving. I think a lot of those countries have been kind of encircled by and dominated by a world economy that has a very different worldview, and it's set in motion a, a kind of reaction against external interference that has some really negative consequences, including negative consequences for gender. And another book that you've written, Valuing Children, Rethinking the Economics of the Family, and you discuss the cost of raising children and the value of childcare to the economy and how these costs are borne by society. Each year, I hear figures as to how much it costs to raise a child. And they can go into six digits until they become what the government could classify them as being independent by the time they're 18. Are there huge costs borne by people in, in all countries? And is this something that people consider before they have a child? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, I think people are realize that in general that it costs a lot to raise kids and they take that into account when they decide to raise them. But we tend to describe this as a sort of a consumption decision, you know, like people decide to have kids the way they decide to adopt a dog or something that, you know, they must know what the costs are going to be and they must get enough pleasure or satisfaction from it to warrant paying those costs. And I think that's a very misleading picture because I think Raising children creates some very important benefits for other people, not just for the parents themselves. And obviously, when you raise children, they grow up to become workers and taxpayers and participants in an economic system that reproduces itself over time. So I think we should be providing a better accounting of both the costs and the benefits of raising kids and who's paying them. How are they distributed? You know, to some extent, children help pay for themselves, but because when they grow up, they uh, contribute and pay taxes. Parents also 
assume a lot of the costs. I think, in general, mothers pay more of the costs than fathers do because a lot of mothers raise children on their own. Plus, a lot of mothers do a very large share of the, all of the unpaid work involved in raising kids. There's also the question of how people who don't raise kids benefit from what parents are producing. I think having a better, if we had a better picture of those flows of resources, I think we could probably provide a better system of social support for caregiving in general and parenting in particular. Women would be more susceptible to, I suppose, a, a wage penalty in terms of bringing these children up. Yeah, when women take time out of paid employment uh, to raise kids, they are foregoing earnings. Of course, that affects their partners as well, and and men pay part of the cost because they're serving as the breadwinner. But in a world where there's a high divorce rate and in in which women's bargaining power in in a relationship might be affected by their potential earnings, I think it ha- does have some really. It does mean that women pay a long term cost for reducing their potential earnings, and I think women realize that, and that's one of the reasons why there's some important renegotiation going on between men and women and also between families and the state. And is there a way of perhaps capturing this value of time spent to care work by parents, fathers and mothers at home with their children? Yeah, I think that there are several efforts underway to try to understand it better. And time use studies uh, give us a picture of how much time is actually devoted to kids and we can assign a value to that time, as we were saying earlier. Because time, and, time is invaluable, really. It's, some people might consider it to be a non-monetary reward, as you uh, pointed out clearly earlier on also. Right, but just because something doesn't have a price on it doesn't mean that it, it doesn't have economic value. And oh, just because you enjoy doing something doesn't mean it's not work. I mean, people often enjoy work, like what we're doing right now is the work. Uh, I'm enjoying it. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not work. So I think that's, we kind of need to change the way we think about work and about value. And I think I think we're doing that. I think I see a lot of really interesting social scientific research that's that's trying to, you know, conduct research to understand these things a little bit better. Speaking to some people that I know, um, they've actually quit their full-time job and they're trying to work and start up companies from their home so that they can spend more time with their children. And they're absolutely loving having made that decision. And, you know, this happiness, I spoke to in a previous episode with Professor Paul Dolan, happiness plays a significant role in the economy. And this is quite intrinsic and intangible, but has positive effects which can lead to economic benefits for the household. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, you know, leading happy and worthwhile lives is kind of the point of the whole economic enterprise, and sometimes we lose sight of that. And there's certainly a lot of evidence that what makes people happy is good human relationships, having close ties with family and friends and community. And I think if we appreciated that a little bit more fully, we could organize our economic system a lot more successfully. I'm not sure if you had explored situation between maybe let's say less developed and more developed countries where children could be treated differently in terms of their perception of value for example children in the slums of india they may not go to school but they may be considered valuable in terms of child labor for the family 
Whereas the same child in terms of age in the United States or any other Western economy would not have that value in terms of the monetary value because they go to school. So is there any kind of economic significance there or any studies that have been done that would have tested something like this? Yeah, clearly in uh, less developed countries, including in the U.S. and Ireland at earlier stages of development, children began providing some economic benefits to their parents at a pretty young age. But I, honestly, I think it's still true that children provide benefits to their parents, not in the form of, of money earnings, but you know, a lot of elderly people depend on their children to help them organize care and to help them, uh, you know, make the transition to situations where they might need assistance. In general, people, elderly people with children do better than elderly people uh, with without children in terms of being able to manage their um, their lives and their and their health problems. You know, developing countries, it's true that children still begin to are still more economically. I guess productive, one could say, at an early age. But I think there's an increasing recognition uh, even there that smaller family sizes is better. And we've actually seen pretty rapid decline in average family size in countries like India. So most of Asia and Latin America, fertility decline has been pretty rapid. Uh, I mean, in fact, far more rapid than it was in Europe or the U.S. So we're seeing a quicker transition to lower fertility. Uh, in many, many countries. Do you mind if I just ask you a number of questions on another book that you have, Nancy? No, sure, fine. Um, In another book that you wrote, Greed, Lust and Gender, A History of Economic Ideas, you tend to capture, I suppose, the pursuit of self-interest and immorality in the whole spectrum of, say, the financial sector. and Well, not necessarily the financial sector, but in the wake of the financial crisis, you have the glass ceiling and the whole idea that men such as Oliver Stone's character, Gordon Gekko, suggest that greed is good. And in that situation, women kind of get lost in terms of their identity and their acceptance in the gender role because they may not be perceived to be, I don't know if you want to elaborate on something like that in terms of how women are perceived in in the industry. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think there's this a long history in in uh, our culture of trying to identify when self-interest is good and when it becomes selfishness, when it becomes something that has really negative consequences for others. And the Gordon Gecko agreed is good. That's sort of an example of at the sort of cultural edge. Uh, the extreme case, extreme argument that greed, that 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 really greed has no negative consequences at all, is sort of part of that, a little bit of a part of that kind of cultural argument. And it's also true that self-interest has always been described in gendered terms. It's always been more permissible for men to be self-interested than women. I mean, femininity is itself is is really associated with motherhood and concern for others and a desire to put family first, uh, et cetera. And so maybe maybe what I find most interesting about it is that as we recognize that some of those definitions are obsolete or are gendered in obsolete ways, maybe that forces us to think a little bit more creatively about how we we want to redraw the boundaries, you know, what at what point we do think self interest needs to be 
limited or counterbalanced by concepts of social obligation for others. Would you believe that there would be a positive outlook in terms of a female president taking over the United States, such as Hillary Clinton? And how would you personally feel about that? Because you haven't had a female uh, president. Right. I think it's, you know, I think it's a positive change. And I think that the way that the political arena has become a vehicle for thinking about gender and gender equality is a really good one. But I guess I think it's probably less important, even though it's more visible and more dramatic, I think it's probably less important than the more subtle changes that are taking place in ordinary people's lives over time. Maybe it's it's important because it's emblematic of that. But I think, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying I think it it is important and it has symbolic value, but I wouldn't say, I wouldn't over-exaggerate its importance. Nancy, where would you see the whole concept of feminist economics developing over the next, say, um, decade? Because there's a huge rethinking in terms of economics at the moment based on what's happened since 2008. And people are feeling that the economic theories that are being taught in colleges are not effective. And maybe that the whole idea that in feminist economics, having more women at the forefront in terms of managing the country could lead to a better economy and state of economics. Yeah, I like the way you put that. I think that I'm hopeful that that will be the case. Uh, I know at the upcoming Feminist Economics Conference in Berlin, which is happening next week, there's a lot on the agenda about care and the caring economy. And there's also a lot of interest in rethinking austerity and austerity policies from a care perspective. Uh, seeing public spending as a form of spending that really contributes to the development of human capabilities and productivity rather than a, a, a kind of drain on economic growth. So I think feminist economics is a part of the whole heterodox challenge to mainstream economics. Uh, and I feel good about that. Great. Nancy, would you have any influencers that you would like to share with us? No, I think you had mentioned that earlier, and I, I sat here for a while scratching my head, uh, wondering if I if there was any one thing that I would point to, but actually I, I didn't really come up with anything. Or maybe that's, you know, it's kind of another story. Um, what about a recommended book? Because I'm going to put all the links of the books that have been mentioned today in this show up on my show notes page. Uh, if you have any other recommended books that you'd like to share? Uh, no, I'm going to... Uh, you know, I've I've tried to say what I have to say in the books that I've published, and in fact, I feel like I'm a better writer than talker. So I would always have people rather have people read my work than hear it out loud. <laughs> kind of an old-fashioned. I know it's kind of an old-fashioned uh, preference. Uh, I think there's a lot of new, really good economics research, especially coming from the younger generation. But people need to make their own choices about what interests them most. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now. And do you have any project or books on the cards at the moment? Yeah, I have a bunch of projects, but a lot of what I'm thinking about and doing, I try to describe on my blog, uh, which is called Care Talk, and that would be a good place for people to 
who are interested in learning more to see what I'm up to. I'm looking at it right now and I see some fantastic uh, posts there about uh, the minimum wage being increased and how that can be uh, beneficial to those care workers. Yeah, I'm trying to do write both about paid care and unpaid care and, you know, kind of a mix of policy stuff and, and theory stuff. And uh, it's great because it's a venue where people can make comments and give me feedback. So that's something I always look forward to. Fantastic. Before we go, Professor Fulbright, would you have any takeaway that you'd like to share with our listeners or for any aspiring economist? You mean like a little slogan or... Uh, yeah, or inspirational. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how about how about this? Take care. Take care. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> Take care and put it into a Google search. Take care, Nancy Fulbright, and you'll be directed straight to her webpage, and you'll see many many takeaways there. Professor Fulbright, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on the yeah. Economic Rockstar. Yeah, Frank, it was really nice to meet you and talk with you, and I wish you luck. I had a blast, and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners once more where they could find you. Well, my Care Talks blog is at blogs.umass.edu slash You can find all the links to Nancy on economicrockstar.com forward slash Nancy Fulbright, F-O-L-B-R-E. Nancy, thank you for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rock star. All right. Well, uh, thank you for that designation and rock on. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Thanks, Frank. Thanks very much for listening to the very end. You're awesome. And I have a little news that not many people know. I'm going to be a father for the second time. Yes, I'm going to be a dad for the second time. And this is the sound of my baby's heartbeat at 16 weeks old in the womb.